Listener Production. You're leaving a trail of your DNA everywhere you go. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is The Science Briefing. When you hear DNA, you might think of the hair on your head, maybe something from a crime scene, or learning about your family tree. You probably don't think koala fur, fish mucus, or kangaroo poo in the bush. This is environmental DNA, or eDNA, but it's not just from animals. Humans leave eDNA behind as well, and some are worried it could be discovered and used in nefarious ways. Today, I chat to Cosmos Magazine journalist Ellen Fidian about eDNA and how it could be used for good and evil. Environmental DNA or eDNA, Ellen, I'm vaguely aware of this concept. Firstly, how is eDNA left out there in the environment? For the most part, it's shedded. So an animal could shed some skin cells or some mucus or fur out into the world. eDNA samples can also come from feces, they can come from hair, they can come from carcasses. Great. These samples are picked up in the environment through this survey technique called eDNA metabarcoding or eDNA barcoding. It's a really powerful technique because compared to, say, trapping and netting things that you need to leave up for like days and weeks at a time to get a DNA sample, this technique, basically you can collect a single sample and it can tell you so much information about what's in the environment. Okay, so where are we collecting these samples from? What sorts of environments? All over the place. So they can be water, soil, other environmental materials like sand, leaves, even air. So basically, researchers are looking for DNA fragments from those samples, and they can use that to tell that thousands of species have been in an area without actually having to observe those species passing through. Okay. So far, eDNA has mostly been used to find marine creatures um, and also insects and other wild organisms, so like turtles. There are a few things it's not as good at finding, though. It's not easy to do with reptiles because they've got really hard skin, so they don't shed DNA as much as other animals do. For instance, a water sample near a crocodile doesn't necessarily mean you'll be able to detect a crocodile. Um, It'll be much harder to do, certainly. And so how exactly do we get a hold of eDNA samples? Researchers or scientists can just go straight out to like a nearby river and collect the water in sterilized tubes in a fairly straightforward way. They can also do things like washing dirt or leaves or sand and then collecting the water from that. That's one of the huge benefits of eDNA research is that you can basically do it anywhere. Um, It's made a lot of ecology much cheaper and faster. But that's also a downside because it means that anyone could collect eDNA and we'll get into the ethics of that a little bit later on. Okay. Back to some cool stuff. There was a really interesting expedition that happened a few years ago. Back in 2018, a group of researchers went to collect eDNA from caves underneath Christmas Island. Oh. They partnered with the Western Australian Speleological Group. There were 10 cavers in this expedition and one scientist going into this massively complex cave system on Christmas Island, which is in the Indian Ocean. They were exploring Lost Lake in these caves. So there was this area that's basically been untouched by people and they wanted to see which species had passed through these lakes and they used eDNA barcoding to do that. So if you see photos of these places, it's literally like they were descending into this other world. There are these huge chambers with huge crystals, taller than humans, and like massive flowstones, which have formed over thousands of years. 
Cool. So it's really dangerous work. You can't just like swim through into the entrance. <laughs> you, you have to like abseil down into these sinkholes. So the cavers have done a whole heap of training to even be able to do this. Once they carefully navigated through, what did they do next? So then they used some very sophisticated technology to collect samples. Six one-litre screw-top camping water bottles <laughs> um, that have been sterilised properly, but that's pretty much it. So once they had their water samples, they passed them through a filter membrane. So that's basically a pasta colander with much, much smaller holes. <laughs> yep. Um, and this trapped all of the cells that had the DNA in them. And then they froze the samples and then took them back to the lab for analysis. Then once it gets to the lab, things are going to get fairly scientific. So DNA can also go by the name double helix. It's got two different strands, and that's how we replicate it and make more of it. So when our cells want to make more DNA, they split the two strands in half, and special proteins make matching strands for each half. So you've got two identical strands of DNA. So it's a little bit mm -hmm. like photocopying, basically. Sure. In a lab environment, researchers basically borrow this idea. They break up the cells, they bring the DNA out, then they heat it up, which peels it apart into those two single strands. Um, and then they mix it with some proteins that basically photocopy and replicate that DNA. Now, the trick is to do this, you need a primer, which is another bit of DNA that is specific to the DNA you are trying to copy. So you can put in a primer for like a really general gene, like a gene that appears in most insects, or you can put in really specific primers that will only single out DNA belonging to one or two species. So this technique basically lets the researchers make heaps and heaps of photocopies of the DNA that they're after, so they can amplify really small samples to study them in much greater detail. This lets them narrow the DNA down to a certain genus, to a family group, and then maybe even to a certain species. And so what did they find in Christmas Island? They found 115 distinct species in the cave ecosystem. Oh, wow. Some they could only get to like the genus or the family level. 21 of them were actually new occurrence records for Christmas Island. So they had been found elsewhere in the world, but never on Christmas Island. Oh. So there were things like um, these small arthropods called springtails. There was an Indonesian shortfin eel, which is very, very elusive, very hard to find. Oh. Um, and a freshwater jellyfish, which is kind of cool. So this eDNA barcoding tool allowed them to pick up more species than any previous study. So you can see how it's become this really critical tool in ecology research. But it doesn't stop there. Some researchers are now looking at human eDNA. Is it the same deal? You find shedded DNA from humans out in the world sort of thing? Yeah, basically. You can find human eDNA in a lot of places. You can find it in beach footprints, so people <gasps> just walking across the sand. Whoa! But you can also just take it from the air both in rooms that are occupied and unoccupied, there's human eDNA floating around. Okay, that's wild, Ellen. But why would we want to look for human eDNA? I'm suspicious. <laughs> yeah, well, there's good reasons and bad reasons, right? So if human DNA is out in the environment, we could use it for doing things like finding missing people. Oh, yeah. Or monitoring population health. But the trick is researchers aren't necessarily looking for human eDNA in the environment. They're just kind of stumbling on it. Because there's so much human DNA around, scientists are pretty much inevitably going to collect human DNA while they're looking for other stuff. Sure. 
In fact, this group of researchers in Florida have just shown in samples that they'd collected to study other things, it was really, really easy to pick up human DNA. So it appeared in all of their samples except like the most remote samples they'd collected, basically. And most of the human DNA in those samples was high enough quality that it was like very similar to if you'd taken a sample from a person. And you could use them to tell things like ancestry, um, susceptibility to certain genetic diseases. Mm. This could create some problems and it's opened up a bunch of other conversations around the ethics of collecting human eDNA. And so what are these conversations focused on? Well, the first thing is consent. It's basically impossible to obtain consent from the people whose DNA you're recording with this method. And like any scientific research done on people typically needs consent in order to just get approved. Yeah. And people are also rightly concerned about having their DNA recorded. It could get used for surveillance purposes. In a really sinister way, it could be used to monitor ethnic minority groups. There are plenty of places in the world where that would be really concerning for certain groups of people. There are also some risks around privacy breaches. So, for example, there's a thing called biopiracy, which is basically taking knowledge from a disadvantaged community or an indigenous community and using it to benefit your own research and technology without letting any of the wealth or the benefits flow back to the people you took that information from. We've gone through why eDNA is a critical ecological tool. But we should also be cautious about the issues collecting human eDNA could pose. How can we balance the good and the bad here? As with any new technology, it's a really exciting thing in an unregulated space. So there's the potential to do good and evil with it. This research is relatively fresh. There's little to no regulation around eDNA. So as researchers uncover more, they're going to have to come up with rules and regulations around it so that no boundaries are crossed while we're looking at human eDNA. But it's also worth mentioning, at the moment, almost everyone who uses eDNA is a researcher who just wants to learn more about the world. So now's a really good time to put in some boundaries and regulations before it becomes entrenched in doing other things like finding pathogens or missing people. And on top of that, it's naturally a very open field. The more data you have, the better you are at identifying species in places where you're not expecting them. It's a good thing that it's so public, but it's concerning if human eDNA is going to be added to that mix. Ellen Fidian is a science journalist for Cosmos Magazine. You can read more of Ellen's reporting at cosmosmagazine.com. The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe. Mixing by Dave Stein. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time. Music